0: Uh, good afternoon, great to uh, see you all here for our Sunday afternoon service. If we've not met yet, my name's Graham, uh, and I'm the vicar, and we're beginning a new little sermon series on Habakkuk, uh, or Habakkuk, as the Americans say. Um, I'm not quite sure whether I prefer Habakkuk or Habakkuk, but uh, I'll leave that to you to decide. I'm not really too bothered by it. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us by your Spirit now? Would you open up these words of Scripture to us? and help us to understand their relevance and their meaning in our lives, this day and always. Amen. Amen. I've um, never really been one for keeping a journal or a diary, apart from, when I was younger, a pocket diary for appointments. But In a brief moment of my late adolescent angst in the mid-90s, I did occasionally write entries in a diary, and in one of them, I remember declaring that I no longer believed in God. I had become a Christian in 1992 at the age of 14, and in about 1996 or 7, in one of these entries, I declared that I no longer believed in God. I don't recall exactly why I did this, this moment of apostasy and faithlessness, I was probably praying that God would make a girl fall in love with me, and she didn't, and so I was angry at God, or something like that. But here's the thing, I certainly remember deciding that God had got it wrong. God had got it wrong, that he had let me down, and that he wasn't to be trusted or believed in. And I was absolutely clear with God in my prayer that this is exactly what I thought. I remember vividly the experience of praying to God and telling him this, God, you've let me down, you've made mistakes. I think it was all a mistake to believe in you and follow you. I'm no longer a Christian. I don't believe in you. I was pretty clear with God as I prayed to him exactly just how resolute I was in my unbelief. And then it dawned on me that I was in fact praying, and I was in fact confident that God was listening and that He knew just how disappointed in Him I was. My attempt at unbelief was proving futile as I prayed to the very God that I was trying to deny. Now, I wonder if you've ever done the same. I don't think I'm alone in this. I wonder how you respond when you feel as though God has got it wrong. When life feels like it's always one step forwards, two steps back? When life is tough and things don't go the way you planned or hoped for? What do you do? To whom do you turn? Where do you go when God gets it wrong? Now that is the question that forms a a sort of thumbnail sketch of the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And it's a book that we're going to explore over the next few weeks in some detail. It's a short book of the Bible, just three chapters. Uh, And that's why we've had the whole of the first chapter read in full just now by Vera. And we'll do the same with chapters two and three in the next few weeks. And then during Lent, we're going to do the same thing with the book of Zephaniah. Again, just three chapters long. And I think that this deep dive into the Old Testament books that we usually skip over is really helpful because it gives us a better understanding of biblical history and chronology, but it also helps us understand how God's people have related to Him in the past. And through this, God's character and His covenantal nature with His people are revealed to us. And in turn, this can help us renew our own confidence in how we relate to God through Jesus and the new covenant made with us by his death and resurrection. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, on page 940 or to open one of the Bibles in front of you or get it up on your phone because I'm going to be referencing particular verses and you ought to sometimes check that I'm not making it up um, by having the Bible there for you. And you might want to use your phone or a notebook to keep some notes, or go back and listen to this on the podcast uh, with a pen and paper and try and learn a few of those dates in biblical history and chronology so that it all helps to hang together. So with all of that said, as my eldest son would say, let's get into it. Now we need to begin by understanding the book of Habakkuk in its own setting and context. So I'm going to give you a brief introduction to Habakkuk uh, as we begin. Firstly, uh, the year is around 610 to 605 BCE, or before the Christian era, or before the common uh, era. Um, It's the end of the 7th century, and Habakkuk lives in the land and the kingdom of Judah. He lives and writes under the reign of King Josiah. A wonderful king who found and reinstated the law amongst God's people. But also, he lives through the reign of Jehoiakim, who did not obey God and was foolish in many ways. And there's some debate as to when exactly. Habakkuk's prophetic writing, this prophetic poem and, that we read, wh- when it was uttered, when it was given, when it was recorded, what was its origin? And for reasons that will become clear, it's possibly later on in his life under the reign of Jehoiakim rather than under the reign of Josiah. So we're not entirely certain the exact dates of the writing in this particular prophetic book, but it's probably reasonably late, partly because God speaks to Habakkuk about raising up the Babylonians as an enemy to the people of Israel. That's there in verse 6 in chapter 1. Now, the Babylonian empire began an aggressive expansion and conquest in the Middle East from the year 625 onwards. But, In the early years of its expansion and its military campaigns, it was preoccupied with taking over the Assyrian Empire initially. So it's probably a few years before they turn their attention to Israel. Remember as well that the land of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. What we call Israel in the Old Testament, or what we often talk to about the kingdom of Israel, and the people of Israel, is only briefly united as one kingdom under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon several hundred years earlier. The northern kingdom, which is commonly called Israel, had been disobedient to God and had fallen to the Assyrian Empire a hundred years earlier, around 721 BCE, when most of its population was deported and scattered around the Assyrian Empire as slaves. Judah, the southern kingdom, focused around Jerusalem, Uh, had a few good and godly kings who kept the people more faithful and obedient to God, but in turn it would fall to the Babylonians in 587 BCE after a long and terrible siege of Jerusalem. And you can read about the siege of Jerusalem in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah and in the book of Lamentations. Now, the accounts of the people of God in exile in Babylon are reported in the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but also chiefly the book of Daniel and in some of the Psalms. So when Habakkuk is writing, we're pretty close to the fall of the southern kingdom, end of the 7th century, 605, 608 BCE, thereabouts. And in contemporary terms, perhaps it's a little bit like living in one of the smaller countries of Eastern Europe just at the moment... Russia is an ex- aggressive and expansionist military force, and they've invaded Ukraine. And maybe you might be next. That might be how it feels if you're a small country in Eastern Europe at the moment. That might be how it felt to Habakkuk and to his contemporaries in Jerusalem and Judah. Our, our neighbors to the north in Israel fell to Assyria, but now the Babylonians have taken over that territory as well. We might be next. So that's a bit about when. Well, now a little bit more about Habakkuk himself. Now, there's not that much that we know, but the first verse of the book describes him, look, verse 1, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Describes him as Habakkuk the prophet. And it's important that we understand that there was a formal role for prophets in ancient Israel. We read in the Bible sometimes about companies of prophets, and Isaiah himself was a court prophet, meaning that he was involved in the inner circle of power in the court of the king. The office of the prophet might have been a bit like a lawyer or a special advisor, although it could also be a bit like a journalist or a commentator. Now, clearly, the prophetic writings that are preserved in the Bible have a particular emphasis on the role of the prophet as conveying God's word to the people. The biblical prophets served to remind the people of God's law and commandments, They spoke God's perspective in contemporary situations. Thus says the Lord is a common pronouncement in biblical prophecy. But there was a whole range of prophetic practice beyond what is recorded in the Bible. There were lots more prophets than what we have in the Bible. Remember the occasion in 2 Chronicles when Ahab is trying to persuade Jehoshaphat uh, to go up to Ramoth-Gilead to do battle uh, with him, and he asks Jehoshaphat whether there is a prophet from whom they can inquire of the Lord. And uh, Ahab complains about Micaiah the prophet, saying, He never prophesies anything good for me. Now this shows us and reminds us that there were other prophets who were simply yes-men. People surrounding the kings and the courts saying things that were favorable and not necessarily God's word. They were perhaps the ancient equivalent of an echo chamber, simply parroting what the king wanted to hear or what we already believed or thought. We also know that there was a professional role of a prophet through Amos, another biblical prophet, but a biblical prophet who said, I'm not a professional prophet. I tend to sycamore and fig trees, and yet God has called me and sent me, commissioned me to go up to Bethel in Israel and to speak his word. He announces himself as not being a professional prophet. But Habakkuk is a professional prophet. But here's the strange thing. In this prophetic writing preserved for us in the Bible, there is no utterance or prophetic declaration directed towards God's people in the whole book. Rather, the whole book takes the form of a dialogue or a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Usually when we read the prophets in the Old Testament, we expect the prophets to be addressing God's people on God's behalf, something to say to us. Here, we're just overhearing and listening in on a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's extraordinary. And this brings me to one other little interesting thing about Habakkuk. His name is derived from the Hebrew term that means embrace or cling. So we might think of Habakkuk as being a bit like Jacob, one who wrestles with God, one who clings to God, one who embraces God even when things are going wrong. And that really sets the scene for the content of the book. And I believe that can help us to see how God might speak to us and encourage us through this little book today. So let's consider a little uh, the content of the first chapter, and essentially the dialogue takes the form of a complaint uh, from Habakkuk to God, that's in verses 2 to 4, and it's got a very helpful heading in our church Bible saying Habakkuk's complaint, followed by a response from God, verses 5 to 11, headed the Lord's answer, and then another complaint from Habakkuk up to the first verse of chapter 2. So what is Habakkuk's complaint. Well, firstly, it's a complaint that God is unresponsive. Look at verse 2. Habakkuk cries for help but sees no response. How long, Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence but you do not save? Second, it's a complaint about injustice, violence, conflict, and strife. Verse 3. This is Perhaps another one of the clues for us that Habakkuk's complaint is under the reign of Jehoiakim rather than Josiah. So a little later, 605, 606, 607, somewhere around then. Because we know that Jehoiakim was not a godly king. Thirdly, Habakkuk complains that Torah is not being followed and implemented. Verse 4, therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. And finally, He complains that there is no godly leadership. The wicked hem in the righteous. Effectively, Habakkuk is um, complaining to God that he lives in dark and testing times and that God is, to his mind, unresponsive. Effectively, Habakkuk is saying, the world's a mess. Society's going to the dogs. Life is tough and you don't care. Tim Keller says that when reading Habakkuk's complaint, he's reminded of an exchange between Frodo and Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. "'I wish it need not have happened in my time,' said Frodo. "'So do I,' said Gandalf, "'and so do all who live to see such times. "'But that is not for them to decide. "'All we have to decide is what to do "'with the time that is given us.'" You see, Habakkuk is perhaps longing for a different age, Perhaps like Frodi saying, I wish that I didn't live in these dark and evil times. I wish I lived in the days under godly rule when the law was observed and there was peace and prosperity in the land. He's seen what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. He knows about the threats to Judah and he's fed up. Fed up, it seems, not even just with Israel, not, not just with his people, but fed up with God. The Bible Project, that wonderful um, website and YouTube channel and podcast, their commentary on Habakkuk puts it this way. He says, unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there's so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they are very similar to the laments you find in the book of the Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. I love that line in the middle. The book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. Doesn't that resonate with you? It resonates with me. The struggle of trying to believe that God is good when there's so much evil and tragedy in the world. If ever you felt as though this whole thing we call Christian faith and belief in the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of God just makes no sense when there's so much violence or poverty or injustice or suffering in the world, then Habakkuk is a book for you. Well, what is God's response? Firstly, in verses 5 to 11, God says that he is raising up Babylon to come and sweep across the whole earth verse 6 that's extraordinary Habakkuk comes with this complaint about evil about injustice about violence about strife about conflict and what does God say it's going to get worse I'm bringing Babylon they all come intent on violence verse 9 they are a feared and dreaded people, a law unto themselves, verse 7. They, this is Babylon. Babylon deify their own strength. Look at verse 11. They sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Babylon is a, a nation whose show of force and violence is a God to them. What? Surely God has got this one wrong. How can he allow the Babylonians to come and make Habakkuk's sufferings even worse? Now, I think Habakkuk is fascinating in all of this because he's totally realistic in his appraisal of the situation. He doesn't sugarcoat things. When when times are dark and difficult, he doesn't sugarcoat things like some of us might be tempted to. He doesn't say that this is all part of God's good plan. He doesn't claim that there's some greater or higher purpose in the suffering. He doesn't encourage stoicism, simply trying to make the best of things and see what happens. He is angry. And he brings his response to God in the form of a second complaint. What? Babylon is even worse. They treat humans like animals, like fish to be caught. Verse 15, the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Babylon just treats humans like fish to be caught and slaughtered, devoured. He says that the Babylonians worship their own strength as opposed to the true God. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. That's what he's saying the Babylonians do. He's saying that these evil people worship their own power and strength as opposed to the true God. He's totally honest in his frustration and in his complaint. In verse 12, he says, look at verse 12, he says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? This is another way of saying, God, I thought you were supposed to be eternal and immortal. How can you let this happen? But here's the interesting thing. He's honest in his complaint, but he's also faithful. Verse 12 continues with these words. And verse 12 is a really key verse for us. My God, my Holy One, you, or we, will never die. And you'll notice in the footnote there, it says that there's a, the Masoretic text says we, we will never die. You will never die, we will never die. There is some confusion amongst, and division amongst the commentators here, because the text is unclear as to whether Habakkuk is claiming that God will never die, you Or that humans will never die. We. Actually, I think that both translations show something about Habakkuk's confidence in God's faithfulness. My God, my Holy One, you will never die. That's a declaration that indeed God is from everlasting. God is eternal. God is immortal. He will never die. God will endure even beyond the empire of the Babylonians. God will outlive these dark days. But it's also a declaration. My God, my Holy One, we will never die. It's also a declaration that God does not abandon his people. We will never die. That is to say, God will not forsake those that he has chosen for himself. So, as we reach the end of this first chapter, as we spend time in this first chapter, we, we see that Habakkuk has brought his complaint honestly to God, realistically but he's also brought it faithfully. He is not on the run from God, he is on the run to God. His complaint is a lament. These are difficult and testing times, but God is still the one to whom he turns. A little bit like me with my adolescent diary. My best efforts to deny God failed miserably because it was God to whom I turned. And in this we see a model of human faith as a response to God's faithfulness. Indeed, as a little trailer to the next chapter, it's worth noting that in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, he's going to be reminded by God that the righteous live by faithfulness. That is, live by God's faithfulness and ours. And Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is a verse that is taken up by St. Paul in his letter to the Romans. Did you know that? Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is taken up by St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 1 verse 17, when he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith and faithfulness is at the heart of this little book. And there's one other clue that confirms this when we come back to the meaning of Habakkuk's name, to cling to, to embrace Habakkuk stands in line with Jacob, who wrestled with God and would not let go. He stands in line with with Job, who argued with God but never turned his back on him. And in this and in verse 12, we realize that this happens because of the covenant that God has made with his human creation. You see, Habakkuk says, My God, my holy one. He doesn't say Almighty God beyond all things. He says, my God, my Holy One. And this is covenantal language. It reminds us that when God is revealed to Moses at Sinai, he's not just Elohim, God Almighty. Rather, he reveals himself to Moses as your God. And he goes on to say that Israel will be his people. Exodus 6 verse 7, God says, I will take you as my own people and I will be Your God. Now, this is the language of covenantal relationships, exclusive and committed relationships. I can talk about my Sarah or my Caleb or my Seth in a way that other people can't because this is about a particular covenantal relationship, a particular exclusive committed relationship. They can speak in the same way of me, but others can't. And this is a fruit of God's grace, that Habakkuk can say, my God, my Holy One, knowing that he belongs to God through the covenant. And so we too can cling to God. We can wrestle with God. We too can embrace and be embraced by God even in the worst of times. We can be totally honest with God about how awful things are but we can have total confidence in his faithfulness to us. When we look at the world around us, it can feel as though God has got all kinds of things wrong. But when we look at the covenant made for us by Jesus in his blood shed on the cross, we see that the only thing that truly matters has been set right. We have been reconciled to God by his faithfulness. And our faithfulness to him brings us into his presence for comfort and consolation, even in the most challenging of times.